Hello and welcome to the Ghosts and Folklore podcast. I'm Mark Rice, and on each episode, I investigate a different, weird, and wonderful subject. And on this episode, we are going to explore one of the most tried and tested methods of banishing supernatural creatures, a technique that has been used for centuries and centuries to send ghouls and ghosts and goblins and all manner of unwanted paranormal visitors back to where they belong. And that is exorcism. Yes, exorcism, a word which, since 1973, might conjure up images of possessed young girls tied to beds using some rather colourful language and regurgitating pea-green soup onto Catholic priests. But if we go back even further, if we go back to 1873 to 1773, while the idea of conducting an exorcism was the same to banish evil forces from bothering their victims, the methods used were wildly different, as you will discover on this episode. And so, to begin at the beginning. And one subject that crops up again and again on this podcast, arguably the single most important subject when it comes to the ghosts and the folklore of Wales, and not just the ghosts and folklore, the history of Wales, the culture of Wales, and not just Wales, of Britain, of Europe, of Western civilization. This one subject, this one hugely important thing that somehow gets overlooked in all of the fantastical tales, and that is Christianity. Christianity, for better or for worse, has shaped Wales as we know it today, and it has fundamentally shaped the ghost stories and the fantastical folklore of the land. Christianity is the lens through which people traditionally viewed such strange events. If they encountered poltergeists, if they encountered the fairy folk, it was seen as the work of an evil force active in this world. It was a sign that the devil walked among us, that his minions, his legions of demons were here on this earth. In fact, Wales's first ghost hunter, as it were, the first person to collect together a book of supposedly real-life ghost stories long before I started publishing my books about similar subjects back in the 18th century. And this is a person I've mentioned a number of times on this podcast over the years now, but he was himself a man of the cloth, a minister known as the Old Prophet, which is a great nickname, the Old Prophet Edmund Jones. And a century after Jones collected these tales together, an American folklorist who I've also mentioned a number of times over the years, Wirt Sykes, also walked in Jones's footsteps, as it were, walked around Wales gathering Welsh ghost stories in the late Victorian age. And he made a rather interesting observation about Jones. He noticed that as somebody who dedicated their life to investigating ghosts and other supernatural creatures, Jones spent all of his time traipsing around talking to people about these things. Nevertheless, Sykes noticed that he relied primarily on second-hand information. Jones was not publishing many of his own personal tales and anecdotes. In general, he was using other people's stories, other people's encounters with these ghosts and these fairies and whatever they might be. And Sykes suggested there was a reason for that. And he said to quote, the extreme 
piety of his daily walk and conversation may have been held as an explanation why the prophet Jones saw so few goblins himself, and consequently why most of his stories of the fairies are related as coming from other people. Now, very quickly, words like goblins here are used interchangeably in the in the good old days with words like ghosts and bogies and things. But what Sykes is saying is that Jones wrote about ghosts and goblins and ghouls and whatever they might be, but he didn't see many ghosts himself. And that was because of his extreme piety. And this suggestion that deeply religious people, which of course in Wales at the time means deeply Christian people, deeply Christian people can protect themselves from supernatural forces. And this is an idea that folklorists like Sykes return to again and again, that all good Christians will not be bothered by such things. They don't need to worry about protecting themselves just by being pious. They are safe. And to quote once more, he says the value of a general habit of piety is a means of being rid of fairies. If you are pious, if you stick to your religious duties daily, nothing too over the top, I don't think. But as long as you pray, as long as you go to church now and then, you can keep these things at bay. Now, on the other hand, this does suggest that if you are the opposite, if you are a little bit naughty, shall we say, well, not just a little bit, if you are a total heathen, if you spend all of your time drinking and gambling and coveting everything that thy neighbour has that is not yours, well, you are just asking for trouble. You are effectively throwing open the doors in a, in a metaphorical sense, in a spiritual sense, I guess. You are throwing open the doors and you are inviting the evil one in with your lifestyle. And that is why we are told wicked people. Or maybe, maybe wicked's too strong a word even, just people who aren't mindful on a regular basis of their religious duties. People who might just let things slip a little bit, shall we say. The kind of people who say, do you know what? I can skip church just this once. Just this once will be okay. And before you know it, it happens again and again. And you're on that downward slope. They are the people who might let evil sneak in. And that's why it's important to make the distinction between the, the wicked who are knowingly going out and doing things they shouldn't be doing to people who consider themselves to be good Christians, but nevertheless, unknowingly, they are leaving themselves open to such things. And that is why they are the kind of people who might encounter these, these fairies, these sprites, these ghosts, these ghouls, these goblins, whatever name you want to put on these things that are out there, just waiting for a little crack to sneak in and pounce. And if you're listening to this thinking, do you know what? I see these things all the time. I must be doing something wrong myself. Well, the good news is, even if things get particularly out of control, if things get really bad, even if you are extremely wicked, Christianity can still help. Although, as you might have gathered, prevention is the best cure. If you are concerned about a paranormal assault in the future, keep up the daily piety. As I'm sure every single person listening to this podcast does anyway. But if you have let it slip a little bit, 
there are some more extreme measures that can be used to get you out of trouble if indeed you find yourself in some kind of supernatural trouble. There is a way to get you back into the flock, as it were, and that is, as you've guessed it, because I told you all at the start of this episode, exorcism. Yes, if you've been a little bit naughty and you've let your spiritual guard down, you can always resort to a good old exorcism. And as mentioned, unlike the form of exorcisms that you might be more familiar with nowadays, having seen them on the silver screen, there are much, much simpler means of exorcism available, which would have made Linda Blair's life so much easier if only she had known. But there are much simpler means of exorcism out there. Some old folkloric tricks that might not look as good in modern day horror films, but certainly get the job done, at least so we are told. And what is slightly unusual about one or two of these forms of exorcism is not all of them are grounded in Christianity. Some of these are non-Christian means of exorcism, which might sound very unusual, especially on an episode dedicated to Christian exorcisms. But these initial ones, which are non-Christian, we are told Prophet Jones was not a fan of them. As you can understand, he was a minister. But if you wanted to conduct an exorcism in a non-Christian way, you could produce a black handled knife. If you happen to have a black handled knife lying around, you can produce that to scare away whatever supernatural foe you might be encountering. And if that doesn't work, you can try the second one, which is turning one's coat wrong side out. I'm assuming that's inside out. Turning one's coat wrong side out is an effective way of ending an exorcism. And that one isn't a piece of old Welsh folklore. That one psychs credits to African-Americans in the south of the United States. And it's always nice to go international with a folklore now and then. But getting back to the more religious exorcisms, what Sykes describes as the more spiritual exorcisms, I guess what you might call the Christian ones that Jones would have approved of. Prophet Jones would have approved of these, these God-approved forms of exorcism. And these have more in common with the exorcisms that you see on screen nowadays, the whole holy water and power of Christ compels you stuff. And the first form is incredibly, incredibly easy to do. I think everyone listening to this podcast will be able to remember this one and conduct it in the, in the case of emergency, dig out this form of exorcism. And we are told first among these forms of exorcism, ranked number one is the pronunciation of God's name. That is it. The pronunciation of God's name. Like I said, nice and easy. All you have to do is invoke the name of our Lord and job done. Something like, in the name of God should do it. If you want to be extra theatrical, in the name of God, begone foul devil or something along those lines should add an extra ub to it. But just pronouncing the name of God, God's name should in and of itself be enough. If, however, that pesky demon is still hanging around, there is another relatively easy exorcism technique. Not as easy as the last one, because this one is slightly out of your own personal control. It does rely on somebody else's voice this time, or some other thing's voice, I should say. And that is, to quote, the crowing of a cock. 
a sound that might be familiar to farmers around the world when the cockerel signals the dawning of a new day, which I'm assuming has some reference to the resurrection, to the resurrection of Christ. Sykes says there is a connection with the story of our Saviour, so I can see the parallels there with Jesus rising from the dead like the sun rises each morning. And if you're thinking at this point, well, that's all well and good. I am now equipped to conduct my own exorcism if needed. I can invoke the name of God and, failing that, wait until daybreak where the sound of the cock crowing will scare away whatever malicious forces are around me. But how do I know for certain this actually works. Is this fact or is this more of your silly old folklore? Well, it just so happens the good old Prophet Jones back in the 1700s did indeed record one such account, a first-hand account that was recorded by Jones of how a, to quote, a very religious young man called Rhys John Rosser from Hendy in the parish of San Hithel, who went, we are told, one morning very early to feed the oxen in a barn called Askibor Athlan. Askibor Athlan? And those of you fluent in translating obscure old Welsh place names will already know this, but that name offers a hint to this deep piety alluded to in Wales. Because the first part, a skibar, which is Y-S-G-U-B-R, simply means barn, with er just Y simply meaning the, and slan being possibly the most popular word you will see in Welsh place names. If you're driving around Wales, you will see signs for places like Llanetli, Llandidno, Llantrisant, Llangotlan, Llangranog, Llansamlet, Llanberis, Llangeneth, Llangadoc, Llan something else. There's hundreds, but I've gone blank. There's thousands of them, maybe. But Llan means church or the parish of. It is the holy land of the faithful people. And so all these names across Wales that you see with Llan in are all Christian in origin and stand as proof of the power of Christianity across the land. And they mean this is the church or the parish of of somebody and not just anybody the name of the saint is in the name as well so Llan Ethley for example is the parish church of Saint Ethley Llan Didno is the stomping ground of Saint Tidno and so on and so on and so on just take the Llan bit out and you've got the saint's name left behind and in this case this barn a skibar a Llan means it is the barn of God himself. This is God's barn, where God can keep his donkeys or whatever he wants to keep in there. Well, there's, there's oxen in this particular one, but God, God can keep whatever he wants in his barn. It's it's his barn. It's none of my business, really. But Rhys John Rosser from Hendy went one morning very early to feed the oxen inside the barn. And having fed them, he lay himself on the hay to rest. It was hard work. I'm assuming he needed a breather, maybe a little bit of shut-eye. So he lay lay down on the hay. And while he laid there, he heard the sound of music approaching. And presently, a large company of fairies came into the barn, which I'm sure was the last thing he was expecting. Heck, it would be the last thing any of us would expect if we were just lying down for some shut-eye in a barn. But in they came, and they wore striped clothing, some in gayer colours than the others, but all very gay and they all danced to the music 
He lay there as quiet as he could. He was trying not to move, trying not to be seen, thinking they would not see him. But he was espied by one of them, a woman who brought a striped cushion with four tassels, one on each corner of it, and put it under his head. So while he was trying not to move, trying not to attract any attention, when he did catch their attention, it turned out that in this case, she was a nice, thoughtful, pleasant fairy who made him comfy with a cushion on which to rest his head. However, and there's always an however with these stories, they never stay nice for long. However, after some time, the cockerel started crowing at the house of Blind Akum, which I am assuming couldn't have been a million miles away because the sound was heard clearly there in the barn, upon which the fairies appeared as if they were surprised and displeased, which is a polite way of saying they were incredibly angry, they were furious at this sound. The cushion was hastily whisked away from under his head and the fairies vanished. So, to recap that quickly, he was lying there comfy with his cushion under his head, but when the cockerel crowed, the fairies grew angry and disappeared, and so did that cushion. And as some kind of explanation as to what the heck was going on in that barn, we are told that the spirits of darkness do not like the crowing of the cock because it gives notice of the approach of day, and they love darkness, not light. And it hath been several times observed that these fairies cannot endure to hear the name of God. They cannot endure to hear the name of God. And so Jones is telling us in this story, much like Sykes does a century later, that you can banish these creatures, these evil creatures, whatever they might be, fairies, ghosts, or otherwise, with these forms of exorcism with the crowing of a cockerel and by calling on the name of the Lord. Although while it was widely considered that these techniques were effective, they would work, there was a slight difference of opinion as to why exactly they did work. And a 19th century Welsh preacher whose opinions we are told contrasted most decidedly with those of Jones. It sounds like Jones doesn't really agree with a lot of things. He is very much his own man. He has his own opinions. But a preacher whose opinions contrasted most decidedly with the prophet Jones had the following suggestion as to why the cock crowing was such an effective way of exorcising the supernatural. And his theory related more to the rising of the sun than the sound itself. The sound itself just acted as, as a signal, as a warning that the sun was rising. But the sun was the important part. And to quote, we are told that the cock is wonderfully well-versed in the circumstances of the children of Adam. His shrill voice at dawn of day is sufficient intimation to every spirit, coblin, wraith, elf, bookie and apparition to flee into their elusive country for their lives before the light of day will show them to be an empty nothingness and bring them to shame and reproach. Which is a rather 
poetic and powerful way of saying that the cockerel sound itself doesn't harm these creatures, be they buckies, be they apparitions. There was quite a list there. But the sound itself doesn't affect them. In fact, it serves as a warning to them because it is the light of day that they fear the most. And this sound is merely a warning to say you need to get back to where you came from because what's coming next is not going to be good. In fact, the light of God will shine a light upon them and it will reveal them to be nothing, literally nothing, nothing but empty nothingness. These things might scare us in the night, but by the light of day, they are revealed to be nothing in the face of God's power. And I guess if you were going to wrap that up into a nice, neat metaphor, into a nice inspirational quote, as it were, which you don't get many of on this podcast, but it's almost like looking on the bright side and that no matter how bad things might be, no matter how dark it might be, no matter how scary the monsters, there is always a new day, there is always a fresh start on the horizon, it's just around the corner. And to wrap up this episode, and it's been a while since I've done this, but to wrap up this episode, I am going to drag the Bard of Avon into things. He used to pop up quite regular and we are overdue a little bit of Shakespeare. And as I'm sure all Shakespeare fans know already, he introduced this piece of folklore, this very superstition, into Hamlet, which has a very famous scene with a ghost. And when the ghost appears, before he can utter his words of wisdom, the ghost is interrupted and makes a swift exit. And to quote Shakespeare, or to quote Bernardo, I should say, from that particular scene, he says that it was about to speak when the cock crew, to which Horatio replies, and then it started like a guilty thing upon a fearful summons. So the ghost was about to speak when the cock crew, and then it fled like a guilty thing. Or as Shakespeare put it, it was about to speak when the cock crew, and then it started like a guilty thing upon a fearful summons. So even in Shakespearean plays, the cock crow, or the coming of the morning, depending on which holy person you agree with, can scare away the supernatural. And if Shakespearean times wasn't old enough for you, Sykes does tell us that this belief is of extreme antiquity and is even mentioned in the 4th century by a Christian poet as being a tradition of common belief. And it's not very often the 4th century crops up on this podcast. See, we really have spanned the world and we've spanned the ages on this episode. And that really does bring us to the end of another episode of the Ghosts and Folklore podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already, please consider subscribing. And if you really enjoyed it, you can support it by rating it, reviewing it, telling your friends about it. And if you really, really, really enjoyed it and you'd like to support it going forward, you can treat me to a coffee via my website, which is always very much appreciated and goes towards keeping this thing on the air. If you'd like more Ghosts and Folklore, you can follow me on social media. And as well as this podcast, I've written a number of books about similar weird and wonderful subjects which are available from all good bookshops offline and on. And on that note, 
it just leaves me to say thank you very much for listening. Dioch and Varian Amrando. I've been Mark Rees. This has been my Ghosts and Folklore podcast, beaming to you from Wales to the world. And I've just spoken about Shakespeare, which I haven't done on this podcast for a while, but he does pop up occasionally. And something else I haven't done for a long time on this podcast, but a lot of people fondly remember, or certainly remember, I don't know if fondly is the correct word, but I haven't used one of my fantastic special effects in a very long time. Special effects that are so bad they are brilliant. And I do get some lovely messages and comments from people about the special effects. I know that might be hard to believe, but trust me, there are some people out there who enjoy them. Well, just for those people, well, no, not just for those people, for everyone, for all of you, as a one-off, I am going to play a new special effect for you. Because I thought, if you have listened to this episode and you are now worried about those creatures in the darkness. I am going to use this sound effect to cleanse the air and to effectively perform an exorcism on everyone listening. So if you are concerned about malign forces in the darkness, fear not, because within a few seconds they will all be banished. I hope. Until next time, no star. <laughs>